0: Several years ago, when I was still living and working in, in Temecula, I had, a, um, I had an old supervisor, boss, and, and friend reach out to me with one of the most amazing invitations that I've ever received as a Christian. Uh, this was a, uh, a dear friend that I had known for some time. He knew for a long time that I was a Christian um, from working together for so many years, and he invited me out to dinner one night because he was, he was going through some trainings, um, trying to move up his and, and, and advance professionally. And one night he invited me to dinner and he said, Hey, one of my tasks that I have to do for this training is I need to reach out to someone that I don't um, share the same outlook on life with, that I don't necessarily have the same religion or, or belief system with. And, and so um, I, I wanted to ask you out, buy you dinner, and give you the floor uh, to explain to me and to lay out for me what it is you believe and why you believe it and, and make a case for, for Christianity. Now, that doesn't happen. Like, that, that is so rare. I mean, if only just evangelism was that, was that easy, that people were just inviting you to tell them, to, to spill the beans and to give them all the details. And... Um, so we went out. We went out to this restaurant, Carl Strauss. He bought, him, he bought me dinner. We were hanging out, and um, he says, okay, go. What, what is it? Like, give me, give me what it is you believed. Like, if, if you have one statement that summarizes your outlook on life, what is that? And then explain it for me. I said, okay. So I thought about it. I said, well, if you wanted to understand my fundamental outlook on reality and on life, it can be summarized by this, system, or by this statement. I believe in a king who's come to slay a dragon and save a princess. And from that opening statement, we launched into our conversation regarding Christianity. Slay the dragon and save the princess. Well, that fundamental idea uh, is at the center of our text this morning, Genesis chapter 3, and it lies at the heart of not just this chapter, but the whole story of Genesis, the Bible, our very lives. The reality itself uh, is a tale of a great prince and king who's come to slay a dragon, uh, save a princess, and deliver a kingdom. How it is this story uh, Come, you know, arises from Genesis chapter three. What that has to do with what we've been talking about in Genesis? I'm going to try to explain it, and we're going to try to cover this this chapter. Now, this morning is going to be a bit like drinking from a fire hose. I'm going to throw a lot at you, more than I normally do in a sermon. We'll see. We'll see how long this takes. Uh, hopefully, it doesn't go. Hopefully, it's not. It's not too bad. But but this morning is is admittedly very dense. And if you are just joining us, you are kind of jumping in after a couple of weeks of going over some of this material. And you may have never approached the book of Genesis in this particular way, um, but we're going to give it a shot. I couldn't fit this into three points. I really tried. We're going to cover this in four. So four points today. Um, not every point has seven or eight subpoints, but we'll see. Four points today covering Genesis 3, and here it goes. Uh, point number one is this: I want us to begin by doing a bit of review. And point number one, of course, is uh, reviewing Adam's eternal potential. Point number one: Adam's eternal potential. Just for the slightest little bit of, of review, here's the story so far. In the beginning, God creates, and He creates, as we as we see in the beginning of Genesis, two realms: a place called heaven. Uh, and a place called called earth. Our God, scripture reveals later on, dwells in heaven as though he sits upon a throne with the earth as his footstool. And the Bible story of creation, the general idea is that is that our God is seeking to bring about a kingdom on earth um, that he creates and fashions the earth. He sets rulers. I mean, I mean uh, he, he fills the space of the earth. He sets rulers over the earth so that he may reign uh, on the earth as he does in that special place called called heaven. God creates the world by the word of his power, um, and he creates man and woman in particular in his image and to set them up as as rulers over creation. That if we think of God as this great king and creator, um, as he's depicted throughout the Bible, sitting in heaven upon a throne... Well, man and woman are created in his image also to be rulers and to be um, kings and queens over the earth. Even the way that the Bible speaks about their task, they are to subdue the earth and they they are to subdue it in that royal sense, to reign over it, to rule over it. And in doing so, establish God's kingdom upon the earth. Last week when we got into Genesis chapter 2, we saw just an alternate alternate perspective on that same scene, and in particular the creation of the man and the woman. We changed our focus to the garden, and we saw how the garden uh, was was like a, a holy space, a temple that was also set upon a mountain, where the holy of holies, the holiest place at the very center of that space also happened to be the peak of the mountain, where man would commune. Uh, with, with God. Eden is both a holy mountain and a sort of garden uh, temple. And that highest point, that highest peak, that does give us a glimpse of what God's kingdom on earth is supposed to look like. Uh, there's lots of elements working in that scene um, that show us what it means for man and woman to bring God's kingdom upon the earth. Our Lord is dwelling, or he is there present in all glory and power. Uh, He is there in communion with with Adam and then with the woman. He's dwelling with man, and man is existing there free of sin. Not only is God's presence there, but his word is there. He speaks to both Adam and the woman. We also have this idea of there being two trees, the tree of life in the middle and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these trees are... Function for Adam and for and for the woman, sort of like, like sacraments um, that are held out. Like the fruit that they yield are like sacraments. The, the tree like those, the spiritual realities that those two trees contained are in are are given in the name. There's there's a sign in the thing signified. The tree of life grants them life, life that endures. There's even a there's clarity on that matter in Genesis three twenty two that were Adam to eat of the, of the fruit of the tree of life, then he would live forever. Likewise, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil bears fruit that also grants knowledge of good and evil, being like, like God and like the angelic hosts, being able to discern good and evil. And if Adam is a man who's placed there, um, as we, we call him a gardener, his tasks there look a lot like also being a priest, that he's there ministering to God in his holy space, just like all priests do. Uh, think of the priest in the holy space or the high priest ministering in the holy of holies. Adam is teaching and instructing like priests. He's naming animals, so he's, um, he's, he's serving that function. He's ministering to God, communing with God. And he's, given, and, and he's told that he's placed there to, to work the garden and to protect it meaning he has to keep it holy. I mean, one of the things that we think about with priests and all of the, um, especially in the Levitical system and all the rules regarding holiness and cleanliness is that's, that's them guarding and keeping the tabernacle or the temple. They have, to make, they have to preserve the holy space, keep it free from unclean intruders. That's what Adam is doing as well. He's also given these rules um, by, by the Lord. He has to follow them keep the space holy, uh, and steer clear of the prohibitions God has laid upon him. Do not eat this particular fruit from this particular tree. And so that's what we covered so far and how Genesis 1 and 2 fit together. But there's a few other ideas that I want us to really grasp onto this morning, one big one in particular. Um, it's very important for us to understand Eden as like this starting point, that it's that that type of communing with God in Eden wasn't intended to just stay there, but as they fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, part of what's implied there is that the rule and the existence of of Eden is is to be spread everywhere. Um, That they're to fill the earth with this kind of life enjoyed upon uh, upon the mountaintop. As one author writes, the Lord made the earth to be inhabited, as it says in Isaiah 45, but inhabited with image bearers in communion with him. And there, so Adam and Eve's vocation included filling the earth with sinless sons of God. But I think that for us, when we think about that and we've covered that and we've reiterated it, I think for us, part of the, part of the major, one major thing in, in Genesis that we have to grasp onto is that Adam and Eve weren't just to Extend the boundaries of the garden and keep the world um, the same. The idea is not that the earth would continue on and endure in the same uh, in the same mode that, that it was created with. That the world itself, and Adam, and uh, and the woman, that they are all created with the potential for greater glory. That it's not just an aim for Adam to extend things the way that they are, but by being, but by being faithful. Uh, by obeying perfectly, by, by, by carrying out his duties, then Adam, through his obedience and through his works, would extend the boundaries and elevate everything to a greater and higher estate, to bring true glory to the earth. Now, obviously, Adam is not created sinful, nor is the world, neither Adam nor the world are fallen, but they are created with a capacity for something higher. The world is created; the earth is created uh, to be glorified. And theologians have a way of talking about this. They talk about the world needing to be consummated and it, it need to be elevated, raised to a higher estate. Or the simple thing is, or the simple uh, imagery is, Adam and creation have to be crowned. Um, that they're created good and upright, but that there's still uh, there's still another elevated existence that is to come for Adam. And really, that idea of being glorified, both the world and Adam, that is the very same idea of being glorified that we have in, in places like the New Testament. They are, they are the same. And when we think of being glorified, we think of resurrection. We have to die just as Christ dies and, and be raised, because that which is sinful in us has to die Adam, too, was made to be glorified, although his glory wasn't going to come through through the means of death, but through works, through obedience, uh, through obeying God's word and his command. The whole world, and everything in it, in other words, was always designed to go further up and further in. Creation itself... uh, needs to be crowned, elevated beyond even the experience of, of Eden, And that is one idea we haven't really dove into yet that we're, that, we're, that we're covering today. But a lot of those details are there and clear by some of what we've already covered. For example, commentators and theologians have pointed to the reality of this seventh day being incredibly unique. That after six days of creating, God enters into a seventh day of rest, that the author of Hebrews will say that that is a day that's eternal and that remains open for all of humanity to enter into. And so there's this idea that Adam, upon his work upon the earth, would be granted the right through his works to enter into that same day of rest that God did. That as God established a pattern of six days, then eternally resting, so too Adam would um, enter into that eternal rest. And the idea of being of the creation and Adam being clowned with glory is taking on this eternal um, existence that is signified by, by the Sabbath. Also, very clearly, we have these two trees in the center of the most holy space that are very, very interesting and mysterious. They are sacramental, and there's a tree there. Water seems to be flowing from that tree, both in both in Genesis and Ezekiel and Revelation, that this tree of life uh, has living water flowing from it, going out to the four corners of the earth. And the eating of that tree, as we read in, verse three, or in chapter 3, verse 22, grants the eater eternal life. And either as we get to the fall, which we'll, which we'll hit shortly, one of the consequences is Adam can't eat that tree, or, or sorry, eat the fruit of that tree because it will allow him to live forever, but to live forever in this current state. Um, There's this idea then that the tree of life is representing this glorified eternal life is held out as a reward for Adam that he would be granted the right to eat of both that tree and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were he to obey. Now there are volumes upon volumes of these ideas that you can go out there and research. I try to summarize as best as I best as I can but the simple premise is this we have to frame Genesis as a story that begins that holds out the promise of eternal glorified life that is available to man if man would, would, uh, would earn it according to his works this has always been where creation is headed And these ideas of a glorified, eternal future are not just something that show up after Christ and after the New Testament. That the end, the end times, this glorified, eternal, blessed life, true life, has always been set out. And that life is synonymous with with the kingdom. What I'm describing to you as we open is this principle that in the Bible, um, eschatology, or end times, Um, the idea and the hope in the future, that that precedes or that that comes before any need for salvation. Uh, Soteriology, in other words. So eschatology precedes soteriology. The vision of the glorious future was on the scene and in the scripture, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, before any notion of a redeemer. And yet, as we read in in chapter 3, due to the tragic choices of Adam, a redeemer becomes necessary if the hope of eternal life is ever going to be recovered. So the second thing I want us to see from chapter 3 as we dig into this narrative proper is point number 2, the tragic choices of Adam. The tragic choices of Adam. Adam's actions, his original sin, and everything that surrounds it, or, or his sin and, all, and everything that surrounds it, this really is the loss of this glorious vision, of this right to earn eternal, glorious life. All his hope of advancing the creation from its present existence to a state of glory, all of that is lost through Adam's actions in Genesis 3. As we read that account um, I don't know if you picked up on every single one of of Adam's absolute failures, but let's systematically break a few of them down. In verse 1, we're introduced to this serpent. The serpent just shows up in the garden. Um, He's just there and then starts talking, so it's a little weird. But one of the things that you can deduce by good and necessary consequences is that this guy is an intruder. And Adam's first failure is, if he's a priest... And he has to keep God's space holy and keep all of the common and unclean things out. This is his first failing, because you have a serpent uh, in the midst of the garden. Now, some of you may, may, may like snakes. That's cool, I guess. But um, we do want to regard this as something negative that's happened. This is not, this is not a good thing that a serpent is, is here He's craftier than other beasts. And in the literary sense, as we look at this story, uh, serpents and similar creatures, um, you know, they are always representations of, of evil. Serpents and sea serpents, even dragons, all those sorts of things are forces of chaos. And they oppose the good order that God has established. Now, there are several pagan myths that you can go to that portray, like, the gods, the, the gods of legend, waging warfare against things like serpents and, and dragons. And that's how they subdue uh, the earth. But it's not only in pagan literature that we find the identification of the serpent with not just dragons, but Satan himself. That's how the Bible um, speaks of early beginnings. Further revelation, in the book of Revelation, identify this serpent with with Satan and with these types of crazy, you know, um, mythical creatures. Revelation chapter 12 says this in verse 7. It says, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And that great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent. Who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world? He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Genesis talks about a serpent whose cunning, crafting, and Eve says that he is a deceiver. The book of Revelation tells us that this serpent, this ancient, this ancient serpent, the dragon of old, is Satan who was primarily functioning as a deceiver, who was cast back down to the earth. Adam, therefore, has really blown it. I mean, he allowed in the worst possible enemy that you can imagine into God's holy space in Eden. That's the first way that he's blown it. Well, also, very clearly, I mean, Adam and Eve both, they both, or Adam and the woman, she's not called Eve until later. I've been trying to say the woman, but whatever. Adam and Eve, uh, they both heed the word of the deceiver rather than the word of God. It's the second thing they do wrong. When the serpent comes and he calls into question what God has said, Eve doesn't only doubt, but she confuses God's word and she begins to add to it. When he says, when he first asks, uh, did God say, Eve repeats what God said, but then she adds a little detail. She says, well, yeah, God said don't, do, don't eat it. He also said don't to touch it, which he never said. Um, she's convinced uh, by the serpent, and he gives them both these twisted truths. Because what he says is ends up being kind of true. Like he tells her, "Well, in the day that you eat of it, you're not going to die," and they don't. Um, and he tells her that when you do eat of it, you're going to have knowledge of good and evil, just like God. And they do. Um, both of those things end up being true, remarkably. So they start to heed another's voice rather than the word of God. What they also then do quite clearly is they transgress the commands of God. I mean, Eve is deceived uh, and then Eve and then Adam both eat. Adam is not off the hook. Really bizarre that as you're reading that, you're thinking that it's all Eve's fault and then you find out Adam's sitting right there next to her the whole time, just going along with the whole whole program. Very bizarre. Uh, Not a great husband. We'll get to that later. Uh, They do not or they do what God has forbidden in their first sin, this, this, this sin of Adam, the very first sin. And they eat, of the, they eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, don't be confused about the idea of the knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge of good and evil for man is a good, is a good thing. When you think about something comparable, like, like the law, like the law gives us knowledge of good and evil. And all over, we hear the law being testified to us something that is good and holy, And pure. And there's little doubt that had Adam and Eve uh, continued and obeyed God, that that knowledge of good and evil was something that God would have uh, not just desired for them, but given to them in his own time and in his own way. But the partaking of that tree was something that was held out to them like a pledge, um, a pledge for their state of glory, that were they to continue. The creation is consummated; they're elevated. Then they would have been able to eat of that rightly, and in the state of glory, had the full knowledge of good of good and evil. The problem, though, is not that good and, that the knowledge of good and evil is is bad for them. The problem is that they lay claim to it illegitimately. The God has forbidden them to take hold of it at that point. Instead, they take it and eat in disobedience, which is too soon. And being in sin then, disobeying God, then when they go to eat of the knowledge of good and evil, well, what does it do? If you're a sinner and you approach God's law inappropriately, his law kills you, as the Apostle Paul testifies to, and it does in this case as well. The knowledge that they are granted exposes their sin and their shame. With that sin comes the loss of of innocence. So they've done all this wrong. They allow on this intruder. They don't heed God's word. They disobey. Uh, And what they end up doing is, through their disobedience, through sin, they turn that wonderful, glorious presence of God and hearing his voice. They turn that from sweet fellowship into terror of his presence. They lose in this moment the ability to dwell with him and for he to dwell dwell with them. Verse 8 has this really interesting... uh, phrase in there it says that they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day i don't know why it's still in there like that um, what it's really getting at is the fact that adam heard the wind of god but the terrifying wind of god the tempest think of like of, of mount sinai where there's just like a storm brewing and this and god comes in the clouds in great power well once you're a sinner once you fall in as they have god's presence goes from from something glorious something terrifying, and that's what happens in the story. God comes in the tempest, and when he asks Adam where he is, Adam, the first thing we're told, we're told that he's fearful. He's afraid to answer because of his shame. So all this stuff is, is happening um, through Adam's disobedience. And the, finally, and, and the final thing that we also see is that the unity between the man and the woman is also broken. There's there's damage done there as well. And you can pick that up, again, from verse 12 in Adam's response. When God asks and questions them, what has happened? Why why has this happened? What have you done? He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. I mean, the last time Adam spoke after Eve was created from his side, he sings a song over her. Oh, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Um, And now he's shifting the blame. Not to the woman who came from his very body, but to the woman whom you gave me, God. No good. It's a disaster. And everything that had been hoped for has gone wrong. And it The hope and the, uh, the desire to achieve glory by works has failed. And the remarkable thing is, is that it's, it failed for someone who was in a state of innocence, who had more going on for him than you and I do. And yet this functions as a cautionary tale for all and everyone who would seek glory by their works through, through their own personal obedience. That, that, way of, that way of moving about the world is over. Any hope of achieving uh, status before God, being able to speak with Him, dwelling in His presence, the glory of, of eternal life of the kingdom, any hope of you achieving that on your own through obedience was lost in this moment. And yet we live so much of our lives acting like we can regain that ability. That is not the case. What has truly happened as we'll see in point number three, that this has become now, point number three, a kingdom lost. A kingdom lost. God's going to give a speech here, and the, first most, and the first part of this speech is to lay out for us how this kingdom has been lost and all the consequences and curses that are now to follow. God goes about this speech And he addresses all three parties, the serpent, the woman, and the man, uh, in that that order. And he pronounces, um, he speaks things to them. He speaks first curses, and then he gives some silver linings or some caveats after every one. So we're going to see that. We'll we'll, we'll go through these quickly. Just reiterate uh, for a few uh, few times that there's going to be a curse given to each one. And then later we'll look at a silver lining. To the serpent, the curse is pretty simple and easy, right? He tells them, um, cursed are you, you're going to go on your belly. And there's even this element where there's going to be enmity now between your offspring and the woman's offspring. Even that's a bit cursed, but we'll, we'll talk more about that um, in a minute. To the woman, her, her, uh, her curse is quite simple. It's there in the first half of verse 16. I'm going to multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And what you'll notice is as you really think about that, well, his curse is related directly to the commands that he was given or, or that God gave to the man and the woman upon their creation. Upon their creation, they're commanded to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And now that task has come under curse. It's, it's gotten complicated. Their curse is that it's going to be difficult. She's going to have pain in her childbearing. Um the bride is going to have a hard time bearing children. Now, quite obviously, that has to speak to natural birth, but as we'll see as the story goes on in time, um, the bride will always have problems um, being fruitful and multiplying from this point forward due to sin. In verses 17 to 18, the man is cursed, and his dominion over the ground, his ability to subdue the ground, is what comes under a curse. So God commanded him to subdue the earth, and that is what comes under the curse. The ground is cursed. The very earth is cursed. Um, Through pain will he yield a harvest from it. Thorns and thistles are going to choke out those things that God had given to them for food, the plants uh, uh, of the field. All of these curses will have a direct consequence of enduring life on the earth, that they're that for man and the woman, their creative purpose, and then even, even the serpent in some sense, um, everything is now complicated. But these three curses, or these curses are part of a bigger picture of what's gone wrong. Um, and the most fundamental and important thing is that now Adam is doomed to die. It's sure. It didn't need to be that way, but that is the case. And not only will he die... But, but mankind and the creation itself are to remain in their current state. That there is no glorification to be had um, through works by, by Adam, he's forfeited that right for himself. There's no hope of extending Eden to the rest of the earth. They've been going back into that place. And that's very clear in verses 22 to 24. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil are taken away from them. They're sent out into the wilderness of the earth and angels with flaming swords are set at the entrance. They completely uh, have lost that point of contact with, uh, with the God of heaven. And if the Bible were truly a tragedy, then paradise and the hope of the kingdom would be lost. Mankind once again created to be kings and queens over the earth, to be elevated uh, to a higher estate, along with the created order, and that desire that longing is still there at the center of every human heart. instead, they and in the kingdom are expelled from earth and exiled to the to the wilderness, and we have become alienated from that purpose now though that 's the case, um, there's some small glimmers of hope, some small Glimmers of hope. The first of which is there's also this bit of preservation. Something hasn't happened, which we thought might happen. Is as soon as Adam eats, he dies, the world ends, it's all, it's all over. But that hasn't happened. And we start to see a little bit of God's grace um, shine through in terms of the restraint that he shows. He's, he, he's very restrained in dealing with death. What the serpent says is, in one sense, true The man and the woman don't die in that very day. Now, it's terrifying on the one hand because that reveals the fact that the type of death God is referring to is eternal, everlasting death, and yet it's a small grace that they continue and endure. God is also committed, for some reason, to continue the project of life on earth for the man and the woman. The image of God is not completely removed from them, things just get complicated by sin. And part of the speech to the serpent and to the man and the woman, particularly the man and the woman, reveals to us that there is a way in which God will graciously allow some things in creation to continue. If you look at the woman, for example, in verse 16, that second half of verse 16, kind of hard to tell if you have an esv it'll it, it'll it has like a number there next to desire uh, it, it's hard to make sense of what's actually happening there that you will not desire or you will desire your husband um it goes it goes back and forth what that means many some some will take that as a as a curse upon the woman it's challenging because that's a hot pox legomena meaning that that word only appears here um Many will say that there's a curse that goes on there, and it goes something like this, that the woman will be cursed to seek to overthrow her husband, and that, um, but she will be ruled harshly by her husband. But that's not it. The statement here in the second half of verse 16 testifies to the preserving reality that God, um, or the preserving grace that God has given to Adam, and in this case, Eve. He, essentially telling Eve that Even though your pain and childbirth will be multiplied, even though that's the case, the good thing, the good news is that even though your husband was a chump in this situation, marriage will endure. Your desire will still be for your husband. The union between man and woman cannot uh, be undone. This is still good, and ultimately Christ will testify to that reality that the bond between man and woman is still something good, that God will preserve her desire for him and his headship over the woman are good things and will continue. So don't take that rule as being a harsh rule. It's just talking about an ordering. And we know that's true when we consider the serpent, which we'll, which we'll do in a minute, this idea of him having offspring, but especially with the man Write that first part in verses uh, 16 to, to 19. No, sorry, um, 18 and 19. For the man, there's a curse that the ground is going to come under for his work. So his work will be complicated. It's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. He's he's not going to be able to subdue the earth as well as he could have. And yet, he will still have some capacity to subdue the earth, even though it's going to come through the sweat of his brow. In verse 19, because what is he going to be able to do? His work will still yield bread. He's going to be able to eat bread. He will still be able to take the raw materials of the earth and subdue them and fashion a new thing. He will still yield a harvest, though it will be difficult. In this, in, in the, in, after this creation, we're told that he will be able to produce bread. In the next story we get to, another new creation with Noah. Right after the floodwaters subside, he produces wine. Bread and wine are images of taking dominion over the earth. And in the case of the man and the the woman, the silver lining is that there's a sustaining grace that will continue. It isn't just going to end here for creation, for the man and the woman. God is not going to wipe the slate clean, but somehow the earth will endure. Man and woman are still going to image God even in a diminished way. And at least in one sense, God will have grace for the world by means of preservation. But the climax of the story and the main thing that we're we've just talking so much about, uh, like walking around about to get to this main thing, is that God's grace will not just be a preserving grace, but that God will at this point from now Uh, forward in the story of the Bible, change the story from a story of conquest and glory to one of redemption and salvation. So the last thing I want us to see is point number four, hope for a happily ever after. Hope for a happily ever after. Even in the midst of all of Adam's failures, Mankind is not to despair. The kingdom at the end of the day that Adam was to work for is not lost. The story of how we achieve that kingdom, though, changes, and it becomes one of rescue, of restoration. The Bible becomes a story of redemption and a buying back of what was forfeited by man. This is how God in Christ enters in and the whole scope of everything shifts and changes and is reconfigured. What doesn't change is the hope of glory for the end that was built into the creation that Adam possessed. But what has changed is how we gain access to that glorious kingdom. That All of mankind dead in sin now has become more of like a damsel a damsel in distress who must be rescued by a king. And what does that king do? Well, he has to come conquer a dragon and lay claim to that which was lost. The Bible doesn't give up on this fundamental plan for the image bearers, those made in God's image, to rule a consummated and a glorified earth. He doesn't, since Adam fell, He's been, And in him, all image bearers have been condemned to death and hell. Uh, God, in this moment, in Genesis 3, also graciously starts laying the groundwork for how he's going to o- overcome Adam's failures. He's going to send another one uh, to take up the task, to bear the image of God, someone who's going to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, slay, uh, slay the dragon, be called to obedience, have to do and fulfill everything that proceeds from, from God's mouth. And yet this will be one, not just born without sin, but this will be one who is born purely of the woman, the woman who Adam names in this moment for the first time, life and the mother of all of the living See, the problem that every son of Adam will have from this point forward, every, everyone born of Adam and Eve by ordinary generation, meaning naturally, is that they will all inherit the sinfulness that Adam has picked up as like a contagion. But God will send one who was born of a woman, conceived by the Holy Spirit, free of the taint of original sin, who could accomplish what Adam couldn't. But remember, the basic goals of the whole story remain the same, even though this new wrinkle has been been added. The story has become, um, has changed, and it's a different type of conquest. God comes to make sure that that the humanity he has created is not left behind. The first vision, the first glimpse that we get of this is in Genesis 3.16. That he tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's something going on here. We're going to dive into this a lot next, um, next week. where There's going to be two sets of offspring that are going to be traced. And remember, I told you in uh, Genesis 2 that that idea of these are the generations of frame Genesis and it's important. What's because it's going to tell? Because Genesis tells the story of these two seeds promised here. Offspring of the serpent in battle and conflict with the offspring of the woman. But from the offspring of the woman who are the people of promise, there will come one who is going to crush the head of the serpent. It is going to stomp on it. just Just like those pagan myths where the gods do warfare against the dragon and they vanquish the dragon. So the promised seed of the woman, the man of God will come and vanquish the evil one, this serpent. Doing so is going to bruise his heel. It's going to cause him harm. And yet, by doing that, it's, he's going to achieve for himself and for everyone who trusts in him the restoration of this kingdom. This is why I told my friend, my basic premise in life is slay the dragon and save the princess. It's not just the plot of every Super Mario Brothers movie uh, it's, or, or, or video game and movie. Um, it's not just the plot of a good fairy tale, but it is the story of existence. It's built into reality, and it's the story of your life. I mean, consider, for example, the passage that we read from 2 Thessalonians. It talk about how we have to believe in the gospel, but then it says something very interesting in verse 14. It says that he has called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. These aren't just new ideas, new terms that the New Testament is throwing out, but it's that very same glory connected with the glory Adam was in pursuit of and lost, and that Christ will come, Uh, um, uh, in the fullness of time and achieve for himself. And he does so not for himself only, but for all who are found in him. As Romans 6 says, just therefore as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This idea of a kingdom promised, forfeited, and then regained. This is how every thread, once again, of the Bible is, is connected. It's how we talk and relate salvation to glory and eternal life. Um, how we relate to the notion of obedience, law, gospel, grace, Satan, spiritual warfare, you name it. It's all wrapped up into this overarching over story. And all we have to do to participate in this glorious unfolding mystery is ironically to act like Adam, because what does he do after God speaks? Well, he professes faith, repents and believes, is atoned for, and is covered through sacrifice. He expresses faith, once again, through the naming of his wife, the woman. He calls her Eve, the living. They've just been promised death, and he knows that he's lost his keys to the kingdom. And yet he names his wife, uh, Life, and calls her the mother of all the living. Humanity's been doomed to die, and yet he calls his wife and all humanity, those who will possess life, true life. He has faith that God will overcome his failings. God responds graciously. Um, he atones for them in a sense. Uh, he atones with blood because what God does after that is he takes animals, uh, he slays them and he produces, uh, he sheds their blood And he produces coverings that will cover the shame of their nakedness, that will cover their sin. He grants comfort, even though they've blown it. This is the gospel at work, and this is the way to be numbered among the people of promise, to be those who will be found amongst the bride that Christ has come to redeem and to save from the penalty of death. This is the glorious hope of the gospel. and This is the story that we've been setting up and telling. And it's taken a few weeks to get there and to lay it out. But may it help us in our own walks. May it help us to abandon all hope in our own self, to rely on our works, uh, to achieve glory and to have right standing with God. And may it increase our faith in the King who has come to restore to us a great and a glorious future. Let's pray.